Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a YA literature, filmic adaptation, and everything in between podcast. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And I nailed that intro. It only took me two times. It was so good, though. The second time was really good. It was worth waiting for. Well, some of us, we got to keep it for the outtakes, right? It's true. It's true for when we're very famous. Hey, we will have... <laughs> many dozens of listeners (laughs) if you're one of our dozens of listeners remember to use the hashtag hkhs pod on twitter to chat about the show today we're talking about before i fall the 2010 novel by lauren oliver and its film adaptation that came out i guess last year joe Mm -hmm, 2017 right and interestingly enough i was looking this up right before we started this and I didn't realize that the screenplay was written by a woman and it's directed by a woman. I know. It's second week in a row for that, which is pretty cool. Yeah. We didn't even intend for that to happen this time. I have little good to say about this book, but I'll give it that. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Well, I mean, unfortunately, gender parity and diversity and all these other fun things doesn't always mean that the content comes out in great fashion. That's true. But I guess we just start with the news, huh? Yes. Do you have something you want to share? I do. I got another book off my hold list. This is less the news section and more the Brenna's hold lists come in section. I also feel like we're really plugging the library. So, you know, people (laughs) get out there and support your local library. Libraries are the best. So this is a book, though, that I think will be of great interest to our listeners. And I didn't hear about it. Like it went under the radar for me. So I really want to talk about it. It's called Paperback Crush, The Totally Radical History of 80s and 90s Teen Fiction by Gabrielle Moss. Yes. Yes. And it's brand new-ish. It was out in October from Quirk Books. And Quirk always publishes really interesting nonfiction. I mean, they publish interesting fiction too, but their nonfiction is always particularly weird and cool. Anyway, so the premise of the book is basically a retrospective of 80s and 90s teen fiction, particularly looking at sort of the girl-centric teen books of the 80s and 90s. So the author basically posits that this period of teen fiction marked like a transition between the issue-oriented, serious, like Go Ask Alice novels of the 1970s, and then the big blockbusters of the 2000s that really define YA now. This was like a period of cheap, disposable, really ephemeral novels. We're talking Babysitter's Club, Saddle Club, there were a lot of clubs, uh, Sweet Valley, all that, good, all that stuff. good stuff. Yeah, it's basically like she explores the history of the genre. It's supposed to be really funny. It's supposed to be very like inside jokey. And she talks a lot of talks a lot about like the kind of series and then the millions of knockoffs that came along. So anyway, the book itself is really beautiful. It's yellow and pink and looks very much like it would belong on the shelf right next to an assortment of Babysitter's Club books. So I'm pretty excited. Yeah, I'm pretty That's stoked. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very exciting. I hope you glean some interesting tidbits that we can end up using. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Oh, it's kind of research. <laughs> yes, please put it down as such. <laughs> How about you, Joe? Do you have news this week? Do you get higher than a B- minus this week? We're gonna see. I'm <laughs> leading into our discussion about things that aren't always working. So I ended up having a Harry Potter weekend. Yeah, so on Friday night, I took the hubby and we went to go and see the new Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. I guess it's a sequel to the prequel. So this is The Crimes of Grindenwald. It's written by J.K. Rowling. It's the second of five films. Wow, seriously? 
I'm very out of the J.K. Rowling loop, evidently. I knew there was like, I knew this existed, but I didn't know it was going to be five movies. It'll be interesting to see if they actually get to all five, considering the box office take seems to be decreasing a little bit with each one, and it's nowhere Mm. near in the same stratosphere as Harry Potter. Mm. But there's a lot of speculation about why it is and it isn't connecting with North American audiences versus worldwide audiences. That's very much blockbuster talk, but it was really interesting to see that film. And then we went to go and see Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra doing the score on Saturday night. Oh, cool. Yes, it's a fantastic thing. And if you live in a big city that happens to offer something like this, they tend to do it with Star Wars and Bond films. And it's always really amazing. So I highly encourage people to take advantage of that. But it was really, really fascinating to compare and contrast the prequel adaptation with the more solidified, well-structured middle Harry Potter sequences. Right, right. So like the return to the property and how is that different from like the real McCoy? Yeah. So I was surprised to learn that J.K. Rowling had actually written the screenplay for this new one because it's kind of atrocious. (laughs) And by kind of, I mean it's full-on atrocious. It's an absolutely terrible screenplay, and it ends up sinking the entire film. Joe, when the Rowling stands find out you said that, where our podcast will be over forever. <laughs> We're going to get trolled to death. No, I'm in the popular side of the opinion for this particular film. I didn't love the first film, but it had a lot of opportunities for growth, and some of the things were really smart and fun and funny. And this one just feels bloated and indulgent, and honestly, a, a little bit like a first draft that needed somebody to come in and say, Hi, I know that you're really famous and this is your universe but at the same time this just doesn't work whereas you contrast that with Goblet of Fire which is very it's not even my favorite book but you can see things like plot points that pay off later on for attentive viewers character arcs that make sense there isn't a reliance on twists to try to make the film more interesting. So it was just really interesting to see YA properties that don't have that foundational text because this is an original screenplay. Like she's not basing it off of a pre-existing book. It's more of an encyclopedia. Right. Oh, I remember when the book was published and then I heard it was becoming a movie and I really thought that's going to take some work to do well, (laughs) right? Because like, it's not inherently narrative. There's no narrative. It's a, it's an encyclopedia of different kinds of mythological beasts. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, not sold on the franchise, but at the same time, it was very interesting to see when you've got a good foundational text to work with, you can turn it into a good movie. Right. And it's, I think, a lot harder to do it from scratch. And what we're going to be talking about today is something (laughs) that takes a not great foundational text to make a movie. Yeah. So I'm going to take the lead and I'm going to introduce this. So the text is Lauren Oliver's 2010 novel, Before I Fall. It concerns a teenage girl. She's in a small town. Her name is Sam. She's one of the more popular girls at her high school. And her best friend is the quintessential mean girl. So Lindsay She's in charge of this foursome of female friends. They rule the school. They're very hot. They put down other people. They're frankly kind of unbearable in all of the wrong ways. Mm -hmm. And so the first part of the book follows them 
throughout this one day, which is a, a Cupid's Day, which uh, establishes all the social hierarchies, introduces all of the characters, and culminates at a party of someone that has a crush on Sam, but he's not very popular. His name is Kent. And at the party, the girl that all of them fixate over and love to trash talk the most, Juliet Sykes, shows up. There's a scene, and she runs out, and later on, when the girls are leaving the party, mildly drunk and not in the best weather conditions, their car crashes after they hit something, and then Sam wakes up the next day, except that it's actually the same day, and she's having a Groundhog Day Christmas Carol kind of experience that she repeats for seven days. Yes. And I'll leave it at that, and let's play the trailer because we're just going to do book and movie side-by-side all the way through. So here's the trailer for the 2017 adaptation by Rye Russo-Young. Maybe for you there's a tomorrow. Maybe there's 1,000 or 10. But for some of us, there's only today. Hey, sexy. Get in! Kiss the hottest boys, went to the stickiest parties. Damn, big party tonight. My mom's going out of town. Oh my god. What's she doing here? Watch this. This whole high school thing's just a blip. Brenna, why don't you <laughs> why don't you kick this off? Okay. So I didn't love the book. And there are a bunch of reasons for that, many of which are personal taste. And I've gotta say, this is definitely one place where I am obviously I'm not down with the kids on this because this was a <laughs> massive bestseller, right? Yeah, this launched Lauren Oliver's career. Totally. And I think Kirkus even gave it a star. So yeah, no, people like this. I don't. And here's why. (laughs) (laughs) So the arc is supposed to be that Sam starts off as deeply unlikable and that we find things to like about her as we learn more about her as she tries to right her wrongs over the course of the narrative. Correct. Except that that never worked for me. Not at all. Because I I still felt like ultimately every choice she makes as a result of the this framework where she has to right these wrongs in order to sort of die in peace is ultimately out of self-interest. A lot. And Yeah. Okay, I'm going to fast forward to the end. Do it. If that's okay. Yep. Is that okay? Let's, okay. Oh, we're spoiler heavy. So if you haven't read the book or watched the film and you want to this is your warning. It's too late. 
I'm about to super ruin it. The big payoff at the end of the book. So what we find out is that when Juliet Sykes runs out of the party, she's running to Route 9 to throw herself in front of the first car to kill herself. And what happens in that moment is that the car that she ends up throwing herself in front of is Lindsay's car. And that is how Sam dies. But what we learn over the course of the retakes is that it doesn't need to be Lindsay's car. She's not waiting for Lindsay's car. She just wants to end her life. Mm-hmm. And so Sam comes to the conclusion that by saving Juliet from committing suicide, she will achieve her peaceful death. In this bizarre final scene of the book, she throws herself in front of Juliet or pushes Juliet out of the way and takes the impact of the car herself. Mm -hmm. She's a martyr. She's self-sacrificing. I have so many questions about the end of the book. Number one, which version of these seven versions does everyone else remember? I think the idea is that only she has remembered any of the previous versions. So this would just be random girl attacks Juliet, tries to tell her not to kill herself, goes to her house, pretends to be her lab partner, and then sacrifices herself in front of a truck. (laughs) Randomly. Very randomly. Which leads me to question number two. And I think it's rooted in the fact, I don't know if, did your version of the book have a whole bunch of supporting material like essays from Lauren Oliver and stuff? It had a interview with the actress who plays Sam, Zoe Deutsch, and the director, Rai Russo-Young. Okay, so my version had this essay where Lauren Oliver like reflects on what her kind of greatest hits. One of the recurring motifs in the book is that Sam wonders what happens when you die, and she hopes that you get this sort of greatest hits real play before your eyes. Right. You get this essay from Lauren Oliver, as well as two additional short stories in the world of this text. And in spite of the fact that I loathed all of these people, I continued to read. You still read them, didn't you? I read all of it. And what I realized in reading... Lauren Oliver's essay at the end of the book is that not that this is autobiographical in any way, but she does base the social positioning and the friend group on her friend group from high school. Oh no, she's a mean girl. Well, this is the thing. I realized that this is what happens every time a formerly popular teenager tries to write about the experience of someone who is unpopular, i.e. Juliet Sykes. It's always awful because Here's the thing. The book ends with Sam dying. What do you think the next day is like for the crazy girl everyone hates at school who now somehow seems to be tangentially responsible for the popular girl's death? Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Does Juliet's life get better? No, no, Juliet's life does not get better. Like, that's my big thing about the end of this book. What has Sam done this for? To what end? None of the other characters have experienced a growth arc. Lindsay is not suddenly kind. Like, I was so flabbergasted that this end was supposed to be in some way moving. It was just infuriating. You're absolutely right. The The strangest thing to me was looking at the different responses that professional critics, I'm putting air quotes around that just because <laughs> how do we, how do we market legitimacy in this time and age? But the thing that really stood out to me was everyone talking about how this book is so filled with themes about learning how to be compassionate and empathetic and you know learning these life lessons that are really going to help guide children to make better more informed decisions as they move ahead into adulthood and all i could think of was no this 
book is about <laughs> like one rich bitch who's selfish yep. and she basically learns to become a marginally better person and literally has no effect on anybody else it takes her seven tries and she has no positive effect on anyone's life except maybe her little sister gets one like nice day but oh man okay here's the other thing the kent plot line like she knows she's gonna die and so she makes this guy think he's gonna have a relationship with her mm-hmm. because it makes her feel good in the moment meanwhile she's just left him to be like the grieving pseudo boyfriend with no social role in this high school like i'm uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> how do you really feel i'm so mad so mad and okay that's the other thing is the socioeconomics of this book so I know that I grew up in a podunk town in eastern Ontario, and I recognize that I went to a rural high school, and I recognize the socioeconomics in which I was raised very different than the ones in this book. But we're talking about a girl who is the poorest of her four friends because she only gets $1,000 a year to spend on clothes? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand who these teenagers are. They all wear Gucci and Burberry? Is that an actual thing? The way they drink. They drink like it's water. I mean, the sheer volume of alcohol consumed at this party. Not only does the party consume two full kegs, but literally everyone seems to be packing several Mickeys of hard liquor. Mm -hmm. I was just, I don't know who these people are. I don't know who these people are. And maybe I would have liked the book better if I could see any of these as actual human beings. But to me, I, I I don't know who these people are. So I didn't have a difficulty connecting to that because, A, that depiction of teenagers has become increasingly popular in recent years. So It's true. It's, the, it's Riverdale. It's Riverdale. Sure. It's the OC. It's canonical text at this point. But I did go... So I grew up in Calgary, which is a, a fairly big city out west. And my high school, it wasn't the biggest in the city, but it was quite large. I think we had a thousand people attending. So if we have US listeners or people who are from really big cities, that may still seem very small. But the social hierarchy did ring true in that these people, I've known them, I've seen them, the privilege is real. (laughs) But that but that doesn't make them likable or endearing characters and this is an interesting struggle because do we have to like the people or the characters in these books or in these films that we're seeing because honestly i wanted to give up on this book for the entire first chapter when the characters are quote unquote at their worst because they're not even that terrible they're just so unappealing i didn't want to spend time with them i don't think we have to like the characters in any text for a text to be successful. But I do think we have to like the protagonist of a redemption narrative. <laughs> I think we have to come to some... It's not a redemption narrative if they don't come to some likability, surely. Like, surely that's a component. Especially when the implication is... And I'm not a particularly religious person, but there's obviously a kind of religious allegory at work in the fact that it takes her seven tries. Yeah, and the Lord's Prayer keeps echoing through the text, and the title is an echo of the Lord's Prayer, too. So I'm already mildly uncomfortable with that whole idea. (laughs) And, you know, if you want to read this as purgatory, or in my case, I was just like, you know what, to me, this, this seems a bit more like a repetitive version of A Christmas Carol. 
maybe that's just because it's the season that we're approaching but no I got that too definitely that vibe of you know writing past wrongs and stuff but the problem is is that with all of those versions whether you want to do any kind of you know there's a horror film that came out last year called Happy Death Day which has the same kind of thing Christmas Carol, Groundhog Day, all of these characters start off as terrible people. And the whole idea is that they learn these lessons, but then they don't die at the end so that they can actually go on to live improved lives and be better people and affect other people in their lives that they have wronged. Whereas you've so correctly pointed out that this book doesn't do that. It only gives the redemption to this main character, but it doesn't change any of the social fabric of any of the other people. But then you're supposed to feel good about it, like she's achieved something, and then she dies. (laughs) And what's so frustrating to me about that is that that whole last chapter, the last day where she's like, I finally learned how to live my day right. She spends so much time reflecting on how Lindsay's not really that bad. Mm -hmm. Elodie and Allie are not really that bad. They're not that stupid or slutty or drunk. No, but but like nothing has changed in their behavior. Nope. (laughs) They're all still still completely atrocious. And like they're still doing horrible things to the people around them. Her her actions haven't changed those characters. And so then what is the point? I know I said that already, but I can't get over how much I don't understand the point of this book. I understand what the point was marketed, but I don't understand what the hell was achieved. Particularly when the book is so freaking long. <laughs> oh my god, 480 pages before you read the extra short stories and the well, that's essay. on you. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, and like, one of the short stories is about her 16th birthday party, and like, she's just super mean to Kent. I'm just like, why did you include this? It's not better. It's not better. At least give that chapter to somebody else where maybe the additional insight would help to lend the book more perspective. Exactly. You know, give no. it to give it to Kent or give it to Izzy or give it to yeah. Juliet for God's sake, because that's who should have been the heroine of this text. It's so true. They use that poor character so profoundly and um you mean profoundly badly yes yeah like i mean use her as in like she is used by this by these characters and by this text i think juliet's family traumas are real and they are played for sam's life lesson not for any meaningful engagement with what it is to be the child of an alcoholic or to live in a home with fear. Like, none of that is addressed in the way Sam reacts. It's just like, oh man, I should have felt bad for her before. Her life sucks. My life is awesome, and now I'm dying. <laughs> yeah, why is this happening to me? Me, me, me. <laughs> so true. But all of the tragedies in this book are played the exact same way. You know, even when we learn that. Lindsay was essentially date raped for her first sexual encounter in New York City. Mm-hmm. When we learn that Allie, they can't hang out at Allie's house after a certain period of time. Did I get that right? Is it Allie or Elodie? Uh, I think it's Elodie. They can't go to Elodie's house after five, isn't that it? That's right, because they do go to Allie's house in the third day. Yeah, they have the sleepover there, right? Yes. Yeah. But all of these people have personal tragedies. But the problem is, is that it often ends up just coming back to say, well, this is a a half-hearted excuse of why they're complete assholes. And also, I guess it makes me feel better about myself. And that's why I shouldn't be so hard on them. And I just, I don't get what Juliet is supposed to have gained from that 
supposed sacrifice. That's the book I wanted to read. You're totally right. The book I wanted to read is Juliet's story and how she finds her way out of a profound depression, how she learns that it can get better, right? That's the story I want to read. Mm-hmm. Not this privileged, mean, wildly unpleasant, self-involved brat. She's such a brat. That is the word for her. They are all brats. They're very bratty. Ugh. Yeah, I would have killed, I think, what day was it? Um, oh, they all bleed into each they other. They really do. I wrote them out <laughs> so that I could keep them straight. So day one is normal, aka terrible. Day two is the repeat where she basically just relives the same day. Like, bitch, do something different. It's not a dream. The chapters are so long. Oh, my God. They're like hundreds. Some of them are like almost 100 pages. Come on. Yeah. The third day is when she goes in late and then they have the slumber party. The fourth day was my absolute favorite because that's the day where she just goes crazy on everybody and starts like swearing and breaking all of her (laughs) friendships. But it also, to me, that was the day that you actually got more insight into a a bunch of other relationships, even if it did go on for too long and... The whole idea that, oh, I'm stealing my nice mother's credit card so I can just buy shit for whatever I want. Her mom is long suffering. Yeah, pity that family for having to put up with her bad behavior. Can we talk? Sorry, no, I'm interjecting. But the casting of the father, he is one of the least attractive people I've ever seen in a movie. I was really like who, who where the plot point isn't that he's unattractive. And then you cast, what is it, Jennifer Beals as his yes! mom? Yes. <laughs> AKA hotness milf embodied. I know. That's Hollywood trope number 69742, though, right? Hot wife, ugly husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a whole other podcast. <laughs> so, just to wrap it up, so day five is when she stays home with her sister, which I. Oh, God, I, we're still talking about the days. <laughs> well, if only because if. No, you're right. It keeps it straight. So day five is she stays home with her sister. Day six is when she tries to be kinder, but then Juliet still kills herself. Because surprisingly, she didn't think that after getting one rose every year with a nasty note, that suddenly receiving a dozen roses was nice. Shocking. That also feels like probably just another variation of the same cruel-hearted prank. Oh, well, totally. They've already done the whole fake boyfriend thing to her, so it's like... Oh, anyway. And then the seventh day is the day when it all comes together and she's living her best life so that she can die her best death. The other thing that doesn't work about this book if you read it for the first time when you're 35 years old is that the narrator keeps saying to the teen reader, we're exactly the same. You think you have your whole life ahead of you. You and I are exactly the same. We don't do anything different. I'm like, bitch, please. I'm a 35-year-old mother of a toddler. Get out of here. It's two in the morning. I'm reading this book because I can't sleep. Shut it. Well, at least you didn't relate too hard to Mr. Dahmer. <laughs> or Dahmer. Oh. I kept reading it as Dahmer. And I was like, he's gonna murder you. Oh, wait, he's just sexually assaulting you. <laughs> I'm so glad they cut that plot line out of the movie. I wouldn't have wanted to see that come to screen. No. Okay, so let's talk about some of the things in the movie version. What do we like? What do we not like? Okay, so one thing first off the bat, and maybe this is a positive sign of even just the seven years difference between the book's writing and the film being made, but I was really pleasantly surprised to see all the casual homophobia stripped out. Mm-hmm. You mean you're so not like, lezzing over that outfit? Yeah, and like he gets called a baby in the cafeteria. And I just was really impressed that all of that got stripped out and that they introduced a gay character. I mean, she's too, super minor and she gets 
very little play, but they reworked a heterosexual love triangle into a slightly misanthropic lesbian character instead. And I don't know, I just thought, cool. Also, um, the cast slightly more diverse in the film than in the book. Mm -hmm. So those, I think, were really strong positives that I, as I say, I want to believe that this is just a sign of the progress of YA media, hopefully, that these things will become the expectation instead of the exception. Yeah, the interesting thing that struck me, so I I had taken note of the more diverse, inclusive casting as well. Let's talk about the party scene, because obviously it's meant to be a focal point, even in the film, when whole sections of the day are stripped out, we always have an appearance at the party. Except for obviously the day when they don't go to the party at all. But Mm -hmm. what did you think of the depiction of the Juliet attack confrontation scene. It's funny because I was watching it and I could feel myself tensing. Like I didn't want to see that scene come. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because I've been so trained now from some really horrific bullying scenes and I'm thinking, I'm looking in your direction, 13 13 13 Reasons Reasons Why, why season two, that I was ready for it to be horrific Mm -hmm. and I found it not nearly as impactful as the book yeah I felt the same way I actually think that there were two very consciously deliberate decisions one is they actually made the girls less mean oh yes they sure did so they're mean but not cruel they would be unwatchable in their novel form in a film I think yeah it just it wouldn't play as human I think Mm -hmm. but then Also, in that particular scene, you still get the same kind of thing where they, you know, they push her and they pour a drink on her, but it's not, she doesn't get pushed around a circle of people who are yelling at her and Mm -hmm. uh, she doesn't have everyone pour their drinks on her. Or if they do, it's more implied and it's not actually shown. We don't have to watch the humiliation unfold in the way we do in the book over and over again. And I think also there's a conscious effort in the film to make sure that Sam is never really a participant. Like, mm-hmm. she yells a few things. But, like, in the book, she shoves Juliet so hard that Juliet loses her balance, like, bumps into a bookshelf, loses her balance. And that's what allows the circle of shoving and drink pouring to happen, right? Like, yeah. Lindsay starts, the, starts that brawl, but Sam makes it harder for Juliet to get out of the scene. Whereas in the film, we only ever see Sam sort of yelling half-heartedly after Lindsay. They're really careful to give Sam some element of likability in the film. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, the technical piece that I noticed that worked really well for me was the second day, which is essentially the the repeat of the first day with very little change. The thing that uh, Rai Russo-Young does during the party scene is the camera is focused almost exclusively on Zoe Deutsch's face the entire time. So you're hearing the fight happening. You're hearing other people talking like you're, you're hearing mm-hmm. Rob puking mm-hmm. into the sink and these kinds of things. But it's all focused on her face and how she's reacting to the fact that, oh my God, it's happening again. No, it wasn't a dream. I know what somebody else is going to say before they actually say it and so on. And it mm-hmm. it really helped to not only reinforce the fact that she's coming to this scary realization that maybe she's dead or maybe she's stuck in a time loop, but also it'll, it allows you to really empathetically connect with Sam on a different yes. level, which is, I think, a lot more meaningful because I didn't connect with Sam except on occasional little pieces in the book. Whereas I think, even though I don't think it's actually Zoe Deutsch's best performance 
I think she's very well cast in terms of she has a kind face and she mm-hmm. she dials back the meanness so that mm-hmm. you can tell she's following along, but she's not she's not terrible. Yeah, in the movie it's more like look how an otherwise good person can get pulled along with the crowd. Whereas in the book it's like people do horrible things to maintain their popularity, right? And I think that the only day in the book that I really like her at all is um, the day she stays home with Izzy Mm -hmm. and they have this family day and you can see this glimmer of, I guess, who she used to be. You get more of that in the film, I think. It's good casting to have someone who you don't want to punch in the face just by looking at her Mm -hmm. in a role like this. Whereas every time Sam opens her mouth in the book, I just roll my eyes. Yeah. Can we talk about the setting where they shot it? Absolutely, because it's out in your neck of the woods. Sure is. They filmed the whole thing in Squamish, or mostly in Squamish, which is like halfway between Vancouver and Whistler. But the campus that they use for that high school is Quest University. Do you know about Quest, Joe? Oh, really? I do, but why don't you tell people who don't? So Quest is Canada's, uh, this is going to sound cute to any American listeners, but Quest was Canada's very first private secular university. By default, almost all post-secondary institutions in Canada are public. So Quest was our our first attempt at a private model kind of alternative framing for university experience. And students do a lot of experiential learning. They don't really have any real faculty. They just go for, people go for like stints of time to teach courses. Uh, So it's a completely different model to most post-secondary. But it's like, it's this, it is a state of the art campus Mm -hmm. that I think with built in maybe 2010 like it's brand spanking new privately funded and totally privately funded because normally when stuff is shot in vancouver they use point gray high school which is the high school that they used in to all the boys i've loved before it's the high school in riverdale it's the high school in everything of course um and so i knew it was shot out here but when i was watching it i was like this isn't point gray what is this and then i realized yeah it's quest university and the reason why i'm bringing this up is because it comes back to my sort of general question about the socioeconomics of like these folks, mm-hmm. like this world to me is so, and you're right. You, I didn't even think of it, but you're right. It has become a real YA trope to set YA problems in these like ultra rich, ultra privileged frameworks. And I think we're moving away from that. Like I think the more recent blockbusters are less interested in the problems of wealthy white people, which is probably good because I'm bored of it. But anyway, yeah, I just thought that that choice to not even use, not even a private high school, not even a public high school, but like a very expensive private university as the campus for the film really sets up the tone. Although, you know, the socioeconomics of it being set in Connecticut makes sense in a very different way. Like, I guess it's supposed to be outside Seattle, I guess. These are wealthy Seattle folk in the film, but it's um, mm-hmm. that's a very different moneyed group, and it's not really a Burberry boots kind of crowd, typically. <laughs> no, that is that is very funny, but I think even the idea of what rich in Connecticut would look and feel like compared to what rich in this fictitious Seattle looks and feels like it's it's a very different kind of mood and aesthetic i appreciated the fact that this film it's on point for the time period that it came out in features all those moody grays and blues it's very it's a very cold 
almost sterile. It reminded me of the lighting of Twilight, I have to say. That's not Very a compliment. Twilight. <laughs> and I don't think that that's an accident at all. It's interesting because the film, much like To All the Boys I've Loved Before, they had to obviously excise a bunch of different kinds of materials and subplots. So I think in the film, we only get four or five days instead of seven. Yeah, she lives three of them as kind of a montage. Yeah, which I appreciated. Mm-hmm. God, so did I. We need book montages, is what I'm saying. (laughs) You know, so we lose that day when she goes off and she splurges with the credit card and we we really get a better sense of just how rich and privileged these people are. So what they do is they fold that into what I affectionately call house porn. Yes, yes. So you talked about the school porn, but all I could do was (laughs) stare with my jaw on the floor at that gorgeous house that she lived in. And yes, her father is an Eve. architect, but holy mother of Vancouver outskirt houses. That thing probably cost $3 million. Oh my God, it it's more than that, my friend. Just so gorgeous. I was like, yeah. well, if you're going to die, at least you got to live in that house. <laughs> if you are listening from somewhere where you're not aware of the real estate market in Vancouver, I encourage you to check out a really fun website called Crack Shacker Mansion <laughs> shows you pictures sorry, of houses. What? It's crackshackermansion.com. Have you not been there? It shows you houses in Vancouver that sold for a million dollars and you have to guess whether it's a crack shack or a mansion. You can't tell the difference because everything sells for a million dollars. Of course it does. I thought you were actually just going to direct people to love it or list it. Oh God. Because of course in that one, which is totally fabricated, it's essentially a Canadian house hunters except that they're trying to decide whether they'll stay or whether they will move into a suitably upscale newer version of the house that they already live in (laughs) but the difference is is the episodes that are shot on the east part of canada and by east i mean toronto the houses look normal and then they still sell for ridiculous amounts whereas in vancouver they look like mcmansions (laughs) yes yep And this has been YA Real Estate Podcast. (laughs) You can cut all this out in post, Joe. It's fine. I will not. We will educate people about the real estate market in Canada. (laughs) You know you want to come here because the healthcare system is better. So you might as well be forewarned. You will put all of that money into your house. (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. Okay, so the only other thing that I have to say about the film is that... I disliked it less, I think for all the reasons we've already talked about, but also because I actually found the quick changes between the days and the not having to kind of live in the morass of her choices really helpful. Agreed. Like you could breathe in the film. I felt like I could breathe in the film, whereas I read the book and I really often did not feel like I could breathe. <laughs> like I, I just, because I was rage holding my breath, I don't know. But the, there's just something about the insistent meanness of all the characters that makes the book feel to me incredibly claustrophobic and the com- community they live in feels very claustrophobic. Whereas and for all the reasons we talked about, the setting and the montage and the kind face, <laughs> for all of those reasons, the film is just, I don't know, I could handle it in a way that I really, if we weren't reading the book for this, I would not have finished the book. No way. 
Well, I think you've rightly pointed out that there's a bunch of things that just make that book feel so heavy. Whereas in the film, despite the chilliness of it, the visual openness and the gorgeous mountains and yeah. even the, the wooded areas, they they feel closer to nature. Like you can breathe a little bit more. Yeah. But then also they they made some wise decisions. This isn't a film that needed to try to cram in seven days because they've got techniques that can say, hey, we're showing you the time is passing, but it's still the same thing because that person did that same action that they did 25 minutes ago. So, you know. Yeah, I thought that was really effective, actually. Like, I, I quite enjoyed that little bit of filmmaking. Yeah, it's called using the techniques of the medium to your advantage to tell mm-hmm. arguably almost the exact same story, like, as far as adaptations go, this is pretty on point. Yep. I mean, it unfortunately still has a lot of the same problems that the book has, but it's telling its story in a much more palatable, efficient way. I will say, so I read the book first and then watched the movie this time. <laughs> I was convinced that they were going to change the ending. And not just because the ending of the book didn't work for me, but because the ending as a movie is completely financial suicide. Oh, interesting. You don't kill your main character, even if you try to make it feel good. That doesn't work, unless you're City of Angels and you're telling a love story. But does this text, does this story work if she doesn't actually die? I think you would have to tack on a coda. Yeah. And have it be something where she starts spending time with other people or she starts to work on Lindsay and the other girls becoming nicer or something to that effect. But I did think that that's where they were going to go. What if what if Lindsay dies? Right. <laughs> Seriously. Okay, before we go, I know we're getting to time. But before we go, I do have to say that over and over again in the book, the narrator asks us, I know I was awful, but did I deserve to die? And I kept saying out loud to the book, yes. Yes. The thing is, is you didn't even just say yes. I'm pretty sure that you were probably like, yes, I hate you. I want to see you go through that windshield. (laughs) If I hadn't been like next to my sleeping spouse, absolutely would have been yelling at the book. A hundred percent. Fantastic. Well, before we sign off with this, I think one thing we should do is keep all of these emotions and these reactions inside so that we can use them for comparison purposes if we ever do If I Stay, which is a very, very similar text, but I would argue quite a bit more successful. Oh, cool. I won't lie. I thought I had already seen this because I have read and seen (laughs) If I Stay. So I was like, wait, she's having deja vu. Wait, I'm having deja vu. (laughs) Am I dead? Am I in purgatory? Was I a bad person? Did I deserve this? There's nothing more YA than a YA knockoff. So (laughs) good on you, Joe. Um, I have a YA bingo for this one. Ooh, yes. Let's play bingo. Bingo. Not a good bingo. (laughs) My YA bingo for this one is rich people have problems too. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good mm-hmm. one. And pervy teacher, obviously. Damn it, that's mine. <laughs> I was like, oh, good. Casual sexual assaults. <laughs> yeah. And then I also yeah. had house porn. House porn. Yeah, that's going to be a good one, too, especially as we watch more and more of these that are made in Vancouver. Riverdale's a good one for house porn. Mm, indeed. All right. Well, I think that wraps up this chapter, and you must be very, very excited that next week Yay. we are doing dumpling. Dumpling.
Brooklyn. I'm so excited for you to read it. I'm so excited for you to meet Willow Dean. And I'm so excited to talk about it with our wonderful listeners. Yes. All right. Well, as we said at the top of the podcast, if you want to engage with us, so if you are a big J.K. Rowling fan or a big Lauren Oliver fan or a big (laughs) Zoe Deutsch fan and you don't like us anymore, you can angry tweet at us at HKHSpod. And of course, if you like us, we would love it if you would give us a, a good rating or review or maybe subscribe so we can get all those dollar dollar bills we don't do that but you know that'll help us somehow and if you want to chat you can find me on twitter i'm at brenna c gray that's gray with an a and i am at b stole my remote and that's the letter b great so i guess that's it for before i fall thank god (laughs) white privilege it will be the death of us (laughs) all right joe so i guess until next time i will see you on the page and i'll see you on the screen